When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sina Janolo. I studied neuroscience and bioengineering, graduating with a PhD from ETH Zurich in Switzerland. Currently, I'm working in the diagnostics industry. Today, I have David Retu with me to talk about his book, Parenting Made Complicated, What Science Really Knows About the Greatest Debates of Early Childhood. David Retu, MD, is an associate professor of psychiatry and pediatrics at the University of Vermont Larner College of Medicine and serves as medical director of the Child, Adolescent and Family Division of the Vermont Department of Mental Health. He has been in practice for nearly 20 years, dividing his time between clinical teaching, public policy and research activities. In Parenting Made Complicated, David tackles many of the biggest controversies facing new parents today and examines the science behind issues such as daycare, praise, sleep training, discipline, helicopter versus old school parenting. Thank you, David, for joining us today. It's great to be with you today. Um, as you write in the book, there are so many parenting books out there. What was your motivation behind writing this book and what can the readers expect to find that is different than most parenting books? Well, exactly as you said, I mean, sometimes we use the expression, there are no manuals in parenting, but I actually think that that's untrue. I think that there's actually hundreds of manuals out there on parenting. They just all tend to say different things. Uh, you know, one, if your child is misbehaving, one book says that you should give your child a timeout and another child says, you, another book says you should give your child a time in. And so I think it can be you know, very confusing for parents who really want to understand what to do. And, you know, they read books that say diametrically opposite things. So the goal for my book was to, in a very non-technical and conversational way, you know, explain what the evidence is behind many of these timeless parenting controversies that you mentioned, like sleep training and discipline. And really one of the central themes of the book is uh, that parenting is not a, a universal thing. In other words, this, uh, the book takes a very one-size-does-not-fit-all approach to parenting, and it tries to help parents understand that despite what someone might read on the internet, there often isn't a good absolute answer to these debates. And what you need to do is take into account some other factors and probably one of the biggest ones is your child's temperament, you know, their, their early personality traits, and that depending on your child temperaments and your own to some degree, um, the quote, correct answer to a particular parenting question 
can be different for different kids. I think parents understand that, but it's funny that ha- to me that most books, um, you know, try to give a more prescriptive answer as though all kids are the same, and we we know that they're not. Yeah, I actually find really refreshing that you start with describing the, the various temperament of children and also personalities of the of the parents. And there has to be maybe a natural match between the two and everything is smooth, but one has to also take care um, to observe these differences. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So the book goes, goes into a, a little tool that you can use to help figure out a little bit about what your child temperament's like along sort of three core dimensions, and then to do the same thing with yourself or your, or your spouse or, um, you know, basically anyone that you'd like. And I, it's important to note that having a good fit or a good match doesn't necessarily mean that you are the same. You have the same temperament as your child, right? Um, sometimes having the same trait can, can really work. If you're, if you're a parent who likes a lot of activity and stimulation, then if you have a kid who's the same way, that, that can often be a good fit. But if you're both prone to, for example, being somewhat impulsive and irritable, well, then sometimes that similar trait is going to cause you to uh, have more conflict than you might be otherwise. So, so fit doesn't necessarily mean the same. And um, what kind of what are the dimensions of this child temperament? So you describe this in the book. Yeah, real briefly, I, I think uh, there are three core temperament dimensions, and one, uh, which is sometimes called negative affectivity, uh, describes how easily uh, people uh, come to experience negative emotions. You know, how quickly does someone experience fear or anger uh, or sadness, and then how big is that? Uh, intensity of that emotion and how long that it lasts. We know that some some kids um, become upset very easily and, and some it takes a lot to rock their boat. Uh, so that's one. Another one is sometimes called extroversion or surgency and it describes, as I said earlier, kids who tend to like a lot of activity, a lot of stimulation, a lot of people around them versus children who prefer quieter activities, having one friend over rather than five friends over and and can get uncomfortable if, if there's too much stimulation around them. And then the third, de- uh, the third uh, dimension is sometimes called effortful control. It's more of a regulatory dimension. It describes kids who, when the moment calls for it, are able to control their attention, control their emotions, control their behavior um, versus kids who are a little bit more dysregulated. So kids who have trouble sitting still or uh, controlling their anger. And, you know, those three different dimensions can configure to create uh, kind of different types of personality, different temperament types. So um, many kids have sort of average levels of all three. And um, a lot of science used to call those those people um, sort of unremarkable. But I thought that was a pejorative term because I wouldn't want my kid to be known as unremarkable. So I kind of call them moderate in the book. Um, but then there are kids who tend to be high on negative affectivity and low on extroversion. There are kids who tend to be high on both. Um, those kids can get agitated pretty quickly. Um, so we go into how these different dimensions are put together to, to define these uh, different types. And it really matters a lot um 
for all these controversies that you cover in the book, what kind of temperament a child has, a certain strategy is going to be successful or not. So I really like that in parallel to describing what science knows about this, you also go into this different temperaments, how it's, it might affect how a child responds to a certain parenting style. Yeah, the book, the way the book is structured is that each chapter is devoted to one of these uh, controversies. And then I, in the beginning, I then try to sort of lay out what the science says in general. But then the, the, the answer, as I mentioned before, the absolute answer isn't there. And usually the answer is it depends. Um, and, and it depends is a very boring way to end a discussion, but it's not a bad place to begin a discussion. And so then uh, each chapter tries to go into a little bit more saying, well, if your kid is a little bit more of this anxious uh, temperament, maybe the answer is over here. If your kid is a little bit more on the on the confidence side, maybe the answer is a little bit more over here and then tries to help walk people through how you know, the quote, correct answer may shift a little bit based on temperament or, or other factors as well. So maybe we start with one of these controversies uh, that you cover, and uh, I would like to start with sleep. All right, let's dive in. <laughs> so um, a classical sleep training approach advises to let babies, what they call, cry it out without parental intervention or levels of parental intervention, and just to put themselves to sleep. And then there are two camps. Some people find the sleep training to teach babies to self-soothe, so it's a positive thing, and others who think the whole experience is traumatizing to babies and teaches them not to rely on parents or so. What does the science say about this, though? Yeah, so one cl clarification first. There aren't too many sleep experts that, that recommend the full cry it out. In other words, just ignore your infant until they you know, fall asleep out of exhaustion. But there are these programs, and probably the most famous one has been called Ferberization, uh, based on a, a famous uh, sleep doctor uh, in Boston, where uh, parents are taught to wait for longer and longer periods of time before going in to soothe their infant. And it's a uh, science has shown that this is a remarkably uh, effective way. It helps probably 80% of babies. And um, despite, uh, you know, some people who are, I think, are very uncomfortable with this uh, approach, the research that we have uh, that extends into childhood has really failed to demonstrate that there are long-term negative consequences of this. Um, and it is effective. And, and getting sleep is no joke because, you know, when parents are exhausted, they're not at their best. And there's some evidence that actually parents become kind of more irritable with their kid when they're more sleep deprived. So there really is some advantage to doing this. But I think one of the things that, that I didn't really understand, and I think a lot of parents don't know, is that there are many other types of sleep training techniques as well. And some of those don't really involve any kind of, uh, you know, waiting and letting your kid cry uh, while you're in a different room. And if, if, parents want to try some of these others, there's no evidence that these don't work as well either. So there are, are a lot of options. And, uh, and, and, and people can also choose not to do them too. Um, there was this initial claim that if you don't do sleep training, your child will not learn how to self-soothe. But there actually really isn't much evidence for that either. So if, if you don't want to do it and you're okay with a, an older 
a toddler, you know, in your bed with you. And, and then, you know, that there doesn't seem to be any huge problem with that. Uh, but uh, I think the science is somewhat reassuring that if you do want to apply some of these techniques, that, that they are uh, effective and they don't seem to uh, have uh, long-term negative consequences. So um, another debate you looked into was if there was a difference between parental or non-parental care, um, such as daycare centers, nannies, and if they how they affect child development or parent-child bonding. Um, what was the most important factor across these two types of child care that the science has observed? Well, for this uh, particular topic, this was an interesting topic because unlike most of the areas that I dealt with, this one had a huge study that was built just to answer this question. Um, and uh, to their credit, they designed a really good study uh, with lots and lots of different variables that they assessed. But uh, they actually designed it so well that they couldn't they couldn't quite get the an- the easy answer they were looking at because it became much more of a it depends situation. So the bottom line from uh, from the the studies on on child care or non parental child care or daycare is that it there really doesn't seem to be uh, any major um, negative consequences for having kids involved in daycare. In fact, there are some studies, and this study suggested that maybe there are even some advantages in terms of getting uh, kids ready for kindergarten. But there are some exceptions. And, um, you know, for kids who perhaps uh, are very anxious, um, uh, kids who may be prone to behavioral problems, um, you know, there there can be some differences on, on the margins. And one of the things that this study also showed is that it's not necessarily daycare or childcare per se, but the quality of it. And that seemed to be a really important factor uh, is how, you know, how the quality of the childcare that's being performed. And another important finding that I, I also found quite reassuring is that even if your child is engaged in um, many hours a week of non-parental child care, the quality of the parenting at home still really matters. It's not as though, you know, your effects gets diluted just because your child goes to attend, uh, you know, uh, a non-parental child care during the day. So that I also found very interesting and also reassuring, uh, especially for working parents, that you don't have this watering down and what you experience with your child or what you teach them or tell them how to behave, I guess this still has this special position in the eyes of the child in some ways. Exactly. We don't we don't lose that influence. Our influence remains really important, even for kids who do almost full time childcare, non-parental childcare. Now, again, another very, at least that I also from hearing around very controversial topic, breastfeeding and breastfeeding has uh, has been also researched, looking at many different um, benefits of it, especially for immunity. There are claimed medical benefits such as decreased um, level of or uh, times of ear infections. But in the book, you focus on the claim that breastfeeding leads to high IQ. Um, what are why are people so hung up on this, and what does science say about it? Yeah, this was a very a sensitive topic uh, to to cover, and um, 
and 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 I'm overall very strong advocate for breastfeeding and and the science behind many of the medical benefits I think is quite strong but advocates of breastfeeding some at least will also um, say that uh, it it improves bonds between parents it improves the child's behavior over time and that it uh, can actually help make kids smarter and that's where the science uh, I'm afraid is a little bit shakier and so the chapter is devoted into you know looking at that specific question and what it looked like, uh, you know, what we found was that in terms of your child being better behaved uh, or having, you know, less anxiety or a better mood, unfortunately, we don't really see much uh, of an effect on the studies. And when it comes to intelligence, um, this is where we really get into the it depends. Um, there were some studies that seemed to indicate that there was maybe a small uh, increase um, some which didn't show any. And um, part of it, I, without getting too technical, really had to do with the quality of the study. So, for instance, if you measure the just the child's IQ, um, sometimes you'll find an effect. But if you also take into account the parent's IQ in your study, then sometimes that effect of breastfeeding goes away or is much diminished. And the, the bottom line here, it looked like um, there might be a, a slight advantage, uh, maybe you know a couple points, maybe especially in the verbal IQ areas. Um, but interestingly, um, it looks as though the, the kids that might um, benefit the most in terms of cognition and, and breastfeeding are sometimes the kids who are least likely to get it. And so um, it looked there was a very interesting and somewhat provocative study that showed that parents who are a little bit lower in terms of their IQ may get their, their kids may get a little bit more of a boost from breastfeeding versus um, children of parents who themselves have high IQ and can provide a lot of enrichment activities and um, basically the people who are more likely to read this book, uh, I think uh, so. Uh, that was a really interesting and, and somewhat delicate uh, finding that I concluded from the research. Um, in, the, in the next chapter following breastfeeding, you explore the science around gender expression and identity formation and how the various sources uh, determine it. Which factors influence gender identity in kids and how and if parents are painting the room blue or pink, does this have a negative or a positive effect? Yes, um, this is a really interesting topic and I think is becoming more and more uh, important and, and relevant. And it really does look like um, that for a lot of these kids, especially these kids who express um gender incongruence. In other words, they don't feel that the, the, the gender they've been assigned really fits them, that a lot of this really does seem to come from, um, come from their sort of their biology and, the, and just the kind of the way that they're built. And, and if uh, parents then really try to push uh, things in another direction, it can make them feel um, you know, somewhat deficient or unwanted. And, you know, more and more, I think we're seeing evidence that supporting somebody um, with their gender identity really is important in their, in their long-term mental health. Um, 
on the other hand, I think sometimes parents have taken this um, to the extreme. Um, and, uh, and, I, and the bottom line for this chapter was really just to, to follow your child's lead, that you don't have to, you know, you maybe you don't want to, you know, shower your kid with these gender stereotypes right from infancy. But, um, but I think that because that there is this sort of strong biological pull, you know, the child will show you where they want to go. And you don't have to, I think, bend over backwards to make sure everything is incredibly gender neutral uh, for the child's true gender identity to emerge. Again, I think this is an example when parents observe their children and be sensitive to their temperament and preferences, then there are these chances to learn more from them and react accordingly and know what they need. Right. And that's really a that's really a core, you know, another core principle of this book is that I think all of us, it's very easy to parent reactively. Um, you know, if you think about, you know, it's an interesting question to think about where did my parenting style come from? Uh, you know, and why do I do it? And for a lot of us, it's the way we were parented that we pass on. For some people, we parent opposite of the way that we were parented on purpose because we didn't like what happened to us. Um, sometimes our, you know, religious beliefs or cultural beliefs are important. Um, but, you know, it, it, I think it, there, it, there is value to, um, to try to take a step back and really think about what you're doing and trying to parent deliberately uh, as kind of like your own little scientist. You know, so let's see what works. Let me have an open mind about this. Let me see if it really is helping. And if it's not helping, you know, can we have the flexibility to try something a little bit different? Um, and, and, and this more sort of deliberate observational um, approach, I think, serves uh, many parents well in terms of more sort of a knee-jerk reaction. This is the way I do it because this is the way I've always done it. At this point, maybe it's good to switch to eating, which is a topic I would uh, guess and kind of know that parents find it very hard to be calm about picky eaters. So um, you note in the book that it's quite interesting, although it would be a very easy topic to do studies. There are not many studies on, on eating. Uh, yeah, exactly. I was really surprised that there was not better evidence. There's a lot of opinions out there. Um, and those opinions make sense and they're logical. But, uh, you know, in contrast to many of the of the subjects that are covered in the book, this one would be one of the easiest ones to do a real controlled trial. And they're just not out there. So we're, I think we're sort of stuck with what we have. And um, a lot of the recommendations now are sort of the... Um, opposite of the old school, you know, you have to eat what's on your plate or you're going to sit there for two, you know, two hours until you are, you know, the kind of the old ways that some of us were, were brought up. Um, and it's much more about avoiding um, power struggles with your kids, about presenting foods over and over again, um, not, you know, not getting into sort of commands and, you know, saying, well, you, you know, you can't have dessert and, so there, there are these approaches out there, and I think more and more um, dietitians and eating experts are, are, are adopting them. But as you say, um, we, we could really use a lot more evidence here, and, and this is definitely an area where 
different kids will respond in different ways. And, uh, you know, some kids like kids who are on the autistic spectrum often really struggle with having a big repertoire of foods. And in those kids, you might have to do something a little bit different for those kids. Sometimes they really, they do respond more to incentives. Um, and so again, the, the answer often is it depends. Um, the next topic that you um, looked into was divorce. Um, and there um, I see that actually the chapter gives a bit of relief to parents who are divorced and might feel guilty about it. And again, I would like to focus on this recurring theme uh, that is quite obvious here too, the quality of parenting. Um, how is that affecting the outcome of, chil of children from divorced parents? Right. So, you know, divorce is hard on kids. I, I was a child of divorced parents and it's it's not easy. Um, but I think most of the research indicates that it's not uh, the sort of mental health catastrophe that some people can feel like it, it can be. And there are things that, that people can do to really lessen the blow for kids. And um, one of the important things is to really try to minimize the level of, of conflict um, that occurs. So, you know, avoid that situation where this where the child is defending mom in front of dad and defending dad in front of mom and, uh, you know, being used as the therapist and um, uh, for both parents. Um, because kids need to love and respect both their parents as much as they as they can. And it also seemed to show that, you know, as, as important as parenting is, it seems to be especially important um, with regards to um, children of divorce. So, you know, that that what we call that authoritative style, uh, where there is a lot of support and warmth and engagement, but also, um, you know, a reasonable amount of monitoring and limits. You know, that combination seems to serve most children in general, but it seems to be especially important uh, for kids after a divorce. Um, then in the last chapters, you look into discipline and praise. Um, so on the, on the one hand, uh, when I was reading actually about, the, about discipline and uh, you cite um, a survey uh, from 2016 that in the US, 60% of the people find it okay to use corporal punishment as a method of discipline. Um, is this uh, really something that you also in practice observe that people find this okay? So I was, I had to ask this because I was really shocked and maybe also you can comment on what the science says about corporal punishment. Yeah, there may be some differences between the U.S. and Europe and other areas because uh, I've had some people said, why do you, why did you even talk about that? Isn't, you know, isn't spanking and, and physical punishment sort of over, and it really is not. Exactly. Uh, I mean, the, the research um, indicates that, and my own clinical work with kids certainly indicates that. Um, and here, when it comes to physical discipline, I think there wasn't so much of an it depends. There really just is not evidence that um, that spanking and physical punishment uh, really. Uh, contribute anything positive. And in fact, um, you know, there's evidence that it often does the opposite. It makes kids more aggressive, less respectful of authority. Um, so th there really wasn't much to get behind it. Uh, um, now, people have now taken this even further. And so the alternative to spanking used to be things like timeouts. And now there's folks who, who think that this 
is a form of child abuse and that uh, this shouldn't be done either. And there, the research is, I think, much murkier. And, and there's, there continues to be, I think, solid evidence that when things like timeouts are used um, appropriately and not all the time, that it can remain uh, one of the tools that parents can use. Uh, but that said, there are kids where it absolutely doesn't work and other approaches are needed. And this is where the temperament of a child uh, really, really comes in. So I don't think people have to, you know, there have been claims that timeouts cause, you know, quote, brain damage. And there just, you know, isn't evidence for that. Uh, so I think, you know, I, this is uh, sometimes parents get scared into into doing things or not doing things. And so I wanted to, you know, to provide some background for that, but also acknowledge that for other kids, other approaches need to be used. Um, then the other side of discipline that I would call is, is praise. Um, and here again, there are passionate camps who say praising kids for everything either spoils them or gives them uh, self-confidence. Um, uh, maybe you can tell us also a little bit about that. And I really want to also point out that at the end, you highlight something quite important that actually, let's say, other than discipline, um, the other uh, side of praise is actually criticism. So then there has to be a balanced approach in that. So uh, maybe you can explain us a little bit further what that means. Sure. So here, uh, you know, the research was less about the it depends factors was, were, was less about the temperament and more about praise itself. Um, so it, it turns out that there's different kinds of praise and these different kinds of praise can have different effects. And um, what's called process praise, where you're praising the method and the effort that goes in, actually has been shown to help build motivation and help kids feel more confident when they're being challenged. Um, but person praise, that's when you're saying, oh, you are so smart, or you're the prettiest girl in the room, or you know, you're talking about traits. That can actually get kids sometimes to sort of get nervous about losing their status, and it can actually make them not want to uh, push themselves in challenging situations because they feel like it's going to be revealed that they're actually not so smart. Or, and uh, so the type of praise really matters. And it also seems to really matter, as you say, not only to think about the praise, but really to avoid the kind of harsh, nasty comments uh, that we sometimes say when we're not uh, at our best. Uh, those can really undermine praise. So you know, if, if you, you might do a lot of praise, but then if you really kind of lose it and, and call your kids a lot of names, you're, you're going to undo uh, some of those positive effects from praise. Thanks a lot uh, for this. And in closing, I again would like to come back to something you point out in the, in, the, in the closing chapter as well. It's about parental warmth and maybe also what we can call availability. So if we just think about all these controversies and maybe think about new controversies we might face as parents, uh, what is really important thing that we can you know, reliably focus on uh, to also think that, okay, we're trying our best and doing a good job? And that's a really important message. I mean, parenting is hard. Uh, and, you know, people read these books and think, oh, my goodness, I'm doing this wrong. I'm, I'm not a perfect parent. And that's OK. I mean, in some ways, being the perfect parent, I am certainly not. Uh, but it, it's neither attainable or it may be not ideal either. And I think uh, just trying to parent deliberately and to um, 
you know, kids recognize that and they appreciate that and they understand that we are human beings too and imperfect. And, and if we can acknowledge some of our uh, difficulties, I think it, it, uh, that's a positive thing as well. So thank you. I, I appreciate the opportunity to be able to talk about the book and all of these really interesting uh, different controversies that are out there. Thank you from, from my side as well for uh, on behalf of New Books Network. Uh, we're also very happy to hear um, uh, you talk about your book. And um, I would recommend everybody uh, to, uh, to read the book and, and get inspired from these ideas. Thank you. Thank you.